good afternoon. Welcome to season three, episode one of Straight Talking English. I cannot believe this is going to be our third season. This is amazing. As I announced on Twitter quite recently, uh, by the way, SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, this will indeed be the Victorian season, the 19th century texts, taking you through Jekyll and Hyde, Sign of Four, Christmas Carol, and Frankenstein. Woohoo! Bit of a disclaimer before the show today this is going to be really quite general there is going to be a lot more detailed stuff i am going to go into later this season i've got quite a few episodes mapped out already hence my slight break for research so we're going to keep it general today and imagine for a sec we are going for a day out in london but the year is 1870 for the purposes of this you're not a tourist you live here so queen victoria has been on the throne for 33 years and will reign until 1901. That means between 1837 and 1901 is what we call the Victorian era. Any year that begins with 18 something at the start is the 19th century. So very specifically, if we talk about Victorian texts, it has to be between 1837 and 1901. So all right, for our day out, let's get ready first. We're gonna need breakfast. A lot of stuff in the kitchen cupboard is recognizable, like Campbell's soup, brown sauce, Coleman's mustard, they're all lurking in cupboards. Problem is, if we want bacon sandwiches, that's gonna be an issue. The butcher's boy hasn't run round to take the order for his family shop yet, but we don't need to worry because it is perfectly reasonable to keep farm animals in your backyard. Indeed, at the back of a house in Bethnal Green, allegedly a cowkeeper and dairyman kept in large sheds about 40 milk cows, and the cows were turned out every day into another large shed. I if you get in the other ground, you do not expect to see that. The option is slaughter ourselves some bacon or one of my many cows I have running around my back garden here in Greenwich, South London. We can make some butter. We can make some cheese. We are going to need bread, obviously, if we're making a sandwich. And bakers are everywhere. But adulteration of food is a big problem. Even though the government has outlawed cutting flour with chalk or lead in 1860, this was very much opt-in. The safest option might be takeaway. Street sellers are everywhere. Not only can you get a delicious pie, but you can also get some shellfish caught in the River Thames. If we're getting ready for a day out, there is no chance of a shower at all. Even having running water is a big deal. For many ordinary people, your aim was to wash once a week at a public baths. Overall, internationally, English houses were considered to be pretty rough. In the late 1830s, a French traveller called Flora Tristan visited London and did not think much of it. Things were clearly a bit better in France. She said, if I ever enter an English home in search of domestic comfort, I shall be very disappointed. In England, if a house is fitted out with carpets from hall to attic, if a handsome tea tray and tea service adorn the drawing room table, if the fireplaces all have their sets of shovels and tongs in polished steel, then it is generally agreed that it's fit to show its face to the world and possesses every comfort a well-to-do gentleman could demand. The drawing room chairs are awkward, heavy and lumpy. They are uncomfortable to sit on as are the chairs in the dining room. Let us go up to the bedroom. An enormous bed occupies the centre of the chamber. A large commode stands in one corner, the table in another. 
while the dressing table is set in front of the window which overlooks a tiny yard for in London all the bedrooms are at the back of the house. Five or six chairs piled high with boxes, parcels, shoes etc stand around the room. Gowns, mantles, shawls and hats hang from nails on all four walls in the absence of a clothes press or wardrobe. It's difficult to imagine the disorder. A French woman could not set foot in it without a shudder of disgust. The English bed sums up to perfection the nature and reality of most things in England. In appearance, nothing could be finer. But just lie down on it for a moment and you'll think you're lying on a sack of potatoes. I mean, she was not impressed. And this is very much an incentive to get up, get ready for our fictional day out in 1870. Right, time to get dressed. If you are male and you are listening to this, you will start with your flannel underpants so undies made of towels if you are poor or a working kind of person you can start with your corduroy trousers a waistcoat heavy boots a cap or what's called a billy cock hat which is kind of halfway between a bowler and a trilby if you've passed your apprenticeship or what's called city and guilds today you are entitled to wear a bowler if you are middle class you are going to be wearing a top hat a coat a waistcoat in quite subdued colors you're not really going to be going to flash in fact it's kind of a reaction to 1840. The famous dandy, Count Dorsey, was originally dressed in colours as gay as a hummingbird. By 1845, he was all in black and brown, a black satin cravat, a brown velvet waistcoat, a brown coat lined with velvet of its own shade, and almost black trousers, one breast pin, a large pear-shaped pearl set into a little cup of diamonds, and only one fold of gold chain round his neck, with one magnificent turquoise. Expect to keep it relatively sober, but accessorising is for boys and girls. Feel free to accessorise as much as you want. If you do not have your own beautiful three-piece suit, you can visit Moss Bros. Yeah, that's right. Moss Bros originally began in 1860 when a chap called Moses Moses began selling clothes from a barrow. His descendants anglicised the name and set up a proper shop a few years later so you can visit the forerunner of Moss Bros. Facial hair, if you are old enough to grow it, do so. It changes very regularly and when I move on a little bit I'm going to be talking a bit more about the whole politics of beards and moustaches. But expect to have some kind of facial hair. Expect to oil it with Macassar oil. So think if you got like a whole tub of coconut oil and rubbed it in, and if you lent your head on something, you would get oil everywhere. And that is your solid look. Ladies, what you are wearing is, well, whatever you need to stress the helpless femininity of being a woman. The ideal way to dress is so you can't actually lift your arms. You must have your silk dress to the floor. If you show your ankles, it means you are a sex worker. Expect to have a crinoline, so a little frame extending around your waist to give you the appearance of a wider butt. There is not a corset, we have moved on, but we have something called a stay. In 1841, it was written that the modern stay extends not only over the bosom, but also all over the abdomen and back down to the hips, besides being garnished with whalebone, to say nothing of an immense wooden metal or 
whalebone busk passing in front of the top of the stays to the bottom. The gait, the way of walking, of an English woman is generally stiff and awkward, there being no bend or elasticity of the body on account of her stays. Expect as well beauty standards to be a little bit different. It is fine if you are what today was called plus size, but you have to have a very small waist. A letter sent to a publication called the English Woman's Domestic Magazine in 1867 reminisces about the joys of stays. And she says, I was placed at the age of 15 in a fashionable school in London. And there it was the custom of the waists of the pupils to be reduced one inch per month until they were what the lady principal considered small enough. When I left school at 17, my waist wet measured only 13 inches, it having formerly been 23 inches in circumference. Okay, people still do waist training now. Fair enough, I believe a Kardashian did it a few years ago. But this is extreme. In terms of your beauty, now you have your beautiful small waist, uh, don't wear makeup. Generally only sex workers wear makeup. And do not dye your hair. If it's going grey, just embrace it. This is what's happening. I went started going grey when I was 16 and I realised at age 32 my greys had come in but only on one side of my head. Somewhere between Doctor Strange and Rogue from the X-Men is what my hair is naturally doing. I do not believe I could survive. We're about to head out now. We are dressed in our beautiful toweling undies. The most noticeable feature outside my house would be 100% the stench. There is no indoor plumbing and there is no bin men. There are, in 1857, 200,000 water closets. So toilets, but they all lead directly into the Thames. I live about 10 minutes walk if you walk quickly from the Thames. So it would be maximum stinky. A newspaper in 1862 said on occasions of high tide the low-lying districts were flooded not with water but with sewage. The filth which is allowed to ferment and fill our houses and streets with gases of ineffable subtlety includes more than water closet liquiescences. There are percolations of crammed churchyards, the rain washings of the streets which carry away with them, filthy objects, horse and cattle dung, refuse from hospitals, fishmongers and fish market washings and offal, slaughterhouse offal, fell mongers, glue makers, candle makers, bone dealers, tanners, knackers, scum boilers and tripe dressers, liquid refuse, refuse from chemical works, gas works, dye works, dead rats, dead dogs and cats and sad to say dead babies. He is not pulling any punches this guy. So the first thing you are going to notice is the utter utter dench. After a short walk, just down the road, just on the 177 bus, if it was now, we hit the beautiful, beautiful Thames. The first thing you would notice, as opposed to now, is how packed it is. Hippolyta Tain, a traveller to London in 1859 and 1862, was absolutely astounded by the busyness of the Thames. He said the number of canals by which the docks open into the body of the river are streets of ships. The innumerable rigging stretch a vast circle of spiderweb all around the rim of the sky. They are one of the mighty spectacles of our planet. The docks are prodigious, overwhelming. There are six of them, each a great port inhabited by a population of three-masted ships from every corner of the world. A merchant who had come to check the arrival of spices from Java and a transshipment of ice from Norway told me about 
40,000 ships enter these docks every year. And as a rule, there are between five and 6,000 in the docks at any given moment. Like, how amazing is that? We think of the Thames as being quite amusing today. Like, oh, it's a little boat place. But actually, this is a working docks. This is what we are talking about when we talk about the old Docklands. If we are heading into town to have a bit of fun on our day out, we've got a couple of options. Steamboat might be the easiest, and for a penny, we could travel the busiest route between Woolwich and Chelsea. But much like the lead in our breakfast, that comes with its own dangers. In 1843, 13 children were thrown into the Thames when a speedboat pulled away from the pier at full speed before the passengers were aboard. Three drowned. The chances of survival with the others were slim if they swallowed much of the filthy river water. There were almost daily collisions between rival steamboats. Sometimes a steamboat simply blew up without any collision. In 1847, the steamboat Cricket, having taken in about 100 and between 70 and 100 passengers, was about leaving the wharf at London Bridge when the engines exploded with fearful destruction. Six persons were killed, 12 very seriously injured and others slightly, most of the passengers being blown into the air but rescued by waterman's boats oh my gosh the train is a thing we could get the train if the steamboats are too hectic the direct Greenwich was a main terminus but the train line that's extending out now that's like Mays Hill Charlton was completed a little bit after our thought experiment takes place Paddington and Charing Cross are newly built terminuses but they the trains that go there might go too fast the speed of a railway train was considered terrifying when queen victoria was whisked from Slough, the nearest station to Windsor Castle, to London in 1842, the train averaged 44 miles an hour over the 17-mile journey. And she asked Albert, her husband, to tell the railway company she had not enjoyed it. Please go more slowly in the future. Comparatively, anyway, despite Victoria's misgivings, they are not too dangerous. The railway boasted a remarkably low accident rate. Fatal accidents, six 100,000 and 653,637 to 1. Injuries, 85,125 to 1. Many of the railway accidents which are recorded arise from the imprudence and rashness of the passengers themselves. By far, the most frequent causes of such accidents being the getting in or out of the train when in motion, or sitting or standing in an improper place, attitude or position. It is a peculiarity of railway locomotion, the speed when not very rapid, always appears to an unpractised passenger to be less than it is. A railway train moving at the rate of a fast stagecoach seems to go scarcely as fast as a person might walk. The official advice continues, never attempt to jump out in case of accidents. By doing so, you are certain to be greatly injured and probably killed. In your seat, you have a chance of escape. Oh, well, well, awesome. Awesome, we're doing a bit better. If we want to head out of town, there are some fabulous options you could take a day return ticket on the Croydon line to Annerley enjoying the beautiful scenery on the way so beautiful if you are listening to this and you know Croydon and rest in the marquee put up by the railway company in the woods near Annerley station or settle down for some fishing in the nearby canal I would not want to eat any fish that I caught near Annerley just saying there was no need to worry about the train back to London the porter rang a large dinner bell in the road five minutes before the train left. Everything is quite recognisable 
but a little bit different. We have the roots in the Victorian era of the things that we take for granted. Obviously, rather than heading out to mystical Croydon, we're going to head into London for fun. If the train journey is too long, feel free to entertain yourself. We could pop in to WH Smith's. The bookseller awarded an exclusive station contract since 1848. You can pick up all the morning and evening newspapers or a weekly if you've ordered it in advance. Some reading, some rug, a rug, some candles or some maps. Feel free to carry your knife in case you need to cut the newspaper apart because it's printed in one massive sheet. Of course, if you feel like you need a snack, you could buy a small camping stove to enjoy a hot meal on the train. The Victorians aren't so much about respectability. While we're out in public, we need to behave properly. So, as I'm over 30, I have no chance of marriage. And I can basically, my best hope is to be shuffled around relatives for the best the rest of my life, like some kind of maiden aunt. But if you are younger than me and still desirable, there are so many advice books. The Victorians love the self-help book and they will keep you on the straight and narrow. Liza Picard, the historian I'm drawing on extensively today, found a wonderful selection of advice for young ladies. If you are listening to this and you are a lady, you consider yourself to be a lady, then this will be very good advice for you. You must be sufficiently well read to be able to share in the conversation when necessary, gently introducing subjects of which you have read in the latest informative magazine and on which the stupidest gentleman can shine. But you must at all costs avoid any hint of being intelligent. If a dubious joke is made in your hearing, you have a choice. Either you may show your disapproval by a frigid glare, but this shows you have understood the double entendre, or you may take the easier choice and ignore it, so demonstrating your pure innocence. Then, you must never be seen in, in an inelegant posture. Blowing out a candle is decidedly inelegant. When smiling or laughing, bear in mind that dental deficiencies are more evident than you think. Well, there you go. It goes on for like four pages. I really, really recommend Victorian London, Life of a City by Liza Picard. Then you will find out exactly what you are doing wrong. So in the city, what can we do for fun? Even though blood sports have been banned since 1835, they do still go on. If we head to Moorgate, we can watch rats versus dogs versus dogs versus rats versus rats in some kind of dog and rat free-for-all. If that is not to your taste, then there are 33 theatres in town. We can enjoy a lurid melodrama or sometimes a masquerade aimed at common folk was held. But that was nothing like the splendours of a royal ball that people like us cannot really hope to get an invitation to. On the other hand, Lucy Littleton attended one in 1859 and she said what a beautiful sight it is. The glittering uniforms, the regal rooms and the royal presence. We made our curtsies rather ill, I'm afraid. From such a slippery floor and difficult to take the Queen's hand from her eminence of two steps. However, we did better than most, for in all events we went low down in our curtsy, and the rest of the world made nothing but nasty little bows and inclinations. The Prince of Wales and Princess Alice, his sister, waltzed together with marvellous grace and dignity, slowly, so unlike the fierce fluttering twirls in a tight embrace that one sees elsewhere. Obviously, things are very 
very refined. We could head to somewhere very cool, Astley's Amphitheatre, where we can see dancing horses and elephant shows. The Alhambra, which is now the Odeon in Leicester Square, is the place to be. Trapeze artists, dancing, music, scandalous can-can dancers, potentially without undies, or even an indoor fountain show called the Titanic Cascades. Obviously, the upper classes will rarely partake, preferring the opera. In fact, the Covent Garden Opera Theatre staged 18 premieres in 30 years. This is unheard of and a huge big deal in the opera world. Your bedtime on this fabulous night out very much depends on your station in life. If you're an enterprising young lady, you may well be one of the capital's 168,000 domestic servants. And as a result, would need to get an early bedtime as your life was, by any standards, rough. Hannah Collett, a maid, described a typical day in 1863 a little bit like this. I got up early and lighted the kitchen fire to get it up soon for the roasting, a turkey and eight fowls for tomorrow being Christmas Eve and 40 people's expected. And they're gonna have a sort of place. They're coming over tonight to do it over and the missus has ordered a hot supper for 15 people. Very busy indeed all day and worried too with the breakfast and the bells ringing so. And such a deal to think about as well as the work to do. I cleaned up two pairs of boots and the knives, washed the breakfast things up, cleaned the passage and shook the doormat, got the dinner and cleared away after, keeping the fire well up and minding the things what was roasting and basting them until I was nearly sick with the heat and smell. The waiter came at five o'clock. I made the coffee in that and give the waiter it as he'd come up for it at seven o'clock. Fred Crook came in and helped me and I was glad of him as well for company. We got supper by a quarter to ten. We run up and downstairs to see some of the acting. We laid the kitchen cloth and had owl supper and cleaned away after. I took the ham and pudding up at twelve o'clock, made the fire up, put another on then went to bed. Came down again at four because the carol singers woke me up just in time the fire wanted stirring bed at four and up early how about no that sounds terrible young butlers had a slightly better lifestyle but i would not say much better william taylor was a footman and in 1837 he said this being sunday nothing transpired of consequence I got up at 7.30, cleaned the boys' clothes and knives and lamps, got the parlour breakfast, lit the pantry fire, cleared breakfast and washed it away, dressed myself, went to church, came back, got parlour lunch, had my own dinner, sat by the fire and read the penny magazine, and opened the door when any visitors came, at four o'clock had my tea, took the lamps and candles up into the drawing room, shut the shutters, took glass, knives, plates, etc. into the dining room, laid the cloth for dinner, took the dinner up at six o'clock, waited at dinner, brought the things down again at seven, washed them up, brought down the dessert, got ready the tea, took it up at 8.30, washed up, had my supper at nine, took down the lamps and candles at 10.30, then went to bed at 11. All these things I do every day. Oh, great. If you are listening and you are young enough to be at school, the chances are you would be in education. For the poorest, there were ragged schools that taught reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion. By 1861, there were 130 of these schools with 2,000 volunteer teachers and 20,000 students. The ratios there might seem weird, but this was more or less normal. Joseph Lancaster ran a school in Borough and taught 1,000 students by deputising 60 or 70 older students 
as monitors. The amazing Moses Angel, who ran the Jewish free school between 1842 and 1897, had a much broader curriculum. He taught a range of subjects at every level throughout the school, including reading, writing, grammar, geography, the history of England from the earliest period up to the latest date, some Greek and Roman history, maths, including the extraction of square root, algebra, and chemistry. He personally trained his teachers in Hebrew, Latin, French, and literature. There are a lot of options. Of course, my dear listeners, you may be off to work educated middle-class young man could become a clerk in the city. Much like today, the area around the city was notorious for gridlocks, probably because between 11 and 5 on the average weekday, London Bridge provided a thousand vehicles an hour to the streets. The mix of omnibuses, think like half-tram, horse-drawn bus, carriages for the rich and horse-drawn cabs, plus the lingering medieval practice of herding animals to market would have added to the open sewer stench. Though, silver lining! The first traffic light was installed near Westminster Bridge in 1868. And, of course, it is nowhere near as bad as it was for our dear Queen Victoria's coronation on the 28th of June, 1848. 400,000 people came into London, which was already home to 1.1 million. The writer called Greville describes it like this. There was never anything seen like the state of this town. It is as if the population had been on a sudden quintupled. The uproar, the confusion, the crowd, the noise are in indescribable. Horsemen, footmen, carriages, squeeze, jams, intermingled, the pavement blocked up with timbers, hammering and knocking, and falling fragments stunned the ears and threatened the head. Not a mob here and there, but the town, all mob, thronging, bustling, gaping and gazing at everything, at anything or at nothing. The park, one vast encampment, with banners floating on top of the tents, and still the roads are covered, the railroads loading with arriving multitude. Oh my god. If you aren't heading to work, you may well be off to church. But that is getting increasingly unlikely. A census in 1851 reported only 50% of Londoners attended church on any given Sunday, and of those, only half went to a C of E service. But Let's face it, the options for this whole outing are pretty strictly limited by social class. Even within the categories of working class, you had labourers, intelligent artisans, and then you have the top end, the educated working class. But not everything is as neatly separated as people would hope. For example, in the stretch of Broad Street in Soho, in 1855. Out of 42 houses, there were two grocers, a baker, an ironmonger, a second-hand clothes dealer, a surgeon, a vet, two tailors, a furrier, someone who sells fur coats, an undertaker, an umbrella maker, a jeweler, and a lapidary, a firm making percussion caps, another making mineral teeth, a straw bonnet maker, a trimming cellar, and a lodging house. In several of the houses, there were between 20 and 30 residents, in one case 50. The surgeon shared a corner house with the farrier, their two households comprising only five people. There were two pubs and a brewery employing 80 workers. Suburbs like Beckenham and Clapham became where businessmen built their big, beautiful Victorian houses. But again, those of all walks of life did all mingle together. 
together when they were in Central. A good place to look at this is the train. In 1844, the Prime Minister William Gladstone decreed that every line had to run a train charging only one pence per mile per day for working people who needed to get their work long before civil servants and merchants clocked in at 10 or so. His parliamentary trains brought into central London crowds of poorly clad creatures, men in patched garments, women in pinched bonnets and coarse shawls carrying a plentitude of baskets and bundles and hordes of third-class children with pale, wan little faces. What a contrast to the quietitude of the scarcely, scarcely patronised first and second-class wagons are the great hearse-like caravans in which travel the teeming hundreds who can afford to pay but a penny a mile. By the end of 1865, 2,000 bona fide mechanics and day labourers, both male and female, were buying weekly tickets to the London Termini at twopence a day return. We are seeing, despite the very, very strict class divisions, I mean, you can argue now, does the class system exist? Yes, no, I'm, I believe it does, but it's slightly less concisely presented than it is in the Victorian time. But unfortunately, as our day out draws to a close, the newly installed gas lights remind us of how much has changed recently this century. For most of the last 50 years, England has not been at war with other European powers. This is virtually unheard of in human history. Power is fundamentally shifting. It's moving away from the upper classes and to the middle classes. We don't have a democracy, but after 1832, our parliament is more representative, at least. Slavery has been abolished on UK soil since 1807, but carried on in the rest of the British Empire until 1833. And yes, that is the big news for this century. From 1857, India is directly ruled by the Empress Victoria, confirmed 20 years after. Women can also legally own property separate from their husbands from 1883 onwards. And by 1884, around 60% of men could vote. The future is looking bright in the 19th century but it's mostly looking bright if you are rich and white and male and christian preferably british but other than that life is pretty good why talk about victorian london for half an hour well all of the books that i'm covering this season are london books and what i've attempted to describe for you here is the setting at least part of the setting for all of our books jekyll and hyde conveniently names the locations it is in Cavendish Square and Soho. Christmas Carol and Dickens are both intrinsically associated with London. Sherlock Holmes at 221B Baker Street has his museum and a very, very clear location of where the famous detective is operating. And while Frankenstein is set in generic Germany, Shelley is very much active in London and this is what's playing in her mind while she's writing it. This, give or take, is the setting for our books, our Victorian era books. Next episode, I will focus on our first writer, Robert Louis Stevenson. He is an absolute legend. I genuinely found his life story hilarious and I cannot wait to show it to you before we go into depth on Jekyll and 
hides are oh, so excited str8 talk english on twitter you can find me on spotify itunes soundcloud stitcher and Castbox, and all of the good places to find podcasts thank you for bearing with me so far i am hopefully as excited as you are about this season and we will be returning to 19th century london next episode to focus on robert lewis stevenson